Heart takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Seth Sommerfeld. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a fellow former 406er who's spent hours taking in the evening in the redness of the West, will tell all his friends I've got my gun to his head, and also is a better drawer than me. He has crossed the border in a septic tank to take out anyone foolish enough to get involved with disparaging the name of the counselor, the 2013 chatty cartel thriller directed by Ridley Scott and written by Cormac McCarthy. Everyone is wrong, but Will Baker isn't. Thanks for coming on, Will. Thanks for having me, Seth. This uh, movie is a lot, so let us get into the background of The Counselor. The Counselor is a 2013 film directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Michael Fassbender as a Texas lawyer known only as The Counselor, who finds himself in way over his head when he gets involved in a massive drug deal that goes awry. The cast also includes Penelope Cruz as the counselor's fiance Laura, Javier Bardem as his crazy business partner Reiner, Brad Pitt as the slick business associate Westray, and Cameron Diaz as Reiner's plotting girlfriend Malkina. The big selling point going into this movie was that it was the first spec script by acclaimed novelist Cormac McCarthy to be produced into a feature film. McCarthy is known for his gritty and violent depictions of the American West and post-apocalyptic times in his books like All the Pretty Horses, Blood Meridian, The Road, and No Country for Old Men. And this was coming on the heels of No Country for Old Men being a successful Oscar-winning film. The Counselor was released on October 25th, 2013. Despite its poor reputation and critical response, it was not a total box office flop. Despite opening at number four domestically in its opening weekend, it ended up grossing $71 million against a $25 million budget, though much of that was in overseas markets as only $17 million of that was made in the U.S. and Canada. So like technically it's a domestic flop, but not a, you know, overall flop. That's interesting to hear. So, Will, I know you have strong affinities for Ridley Scott and for Cormac McCarthy. So what's your personal experience with The Counselor? When did you first see it? What was your thoughts going into it and then sort of reaction after? Yeah. So by that time, by 2013, my favorite movie was Blade Runner and my favorite book was Blood Meridian. And so I'd been following its production as long as I could through the blogs and whatnot. And, right. you know, hearing that the script had been written. Because Cormac McCarthy had written, I think he'd written a play, if I remember right, or two uh, a little bit earlier in his career. And I was like, one day, homeboy's got to write a movie. And I did. And so, yeah, as soon as that started getting some attention, I was following it and uh, I think it's safe to say I was probably there opening night in uh, San Francisco. As I recall, I loved it instantly. And I was, I went into it hoping for, I think hoping for a little bit more, probably a little bit more violence than, than I got from the movie, mm-hmm. just based on loving how well McCarthy does that and how sort of interestingly Scott had handled that in other movies. And perhaps initially hoping for a little bit more of a a thicker tone, maybe a thicker sort of like ambiance to the movie than what I initially perceived there to be. 
Um, since then, upon subsequent viewings, I've I've been uh, satisfied <laughs> by both counts, and it's become uh, one of my favorites. I would say earnest favorites, not sort of like ironic. Or right. No, this, that's what the that's the point of this show. We're not here to be. Yeah. I like it because it's so bad or something like that. Though there are people that fall into that category, and we'll get to that. <laughs> But yeah, I, I saw the movie just for this podcast because it was, again, as so many of the movies are for this, something that I was told was largely bad by most people other than you. And <laughs> so it just was not on the front burner of like, I need to get around to watching this immediately. I didn't have much of a sense for the critical reception of it at all until, um, gosh, probably until we started talking about it, whenever that was. Right. I definitely do the thing sometimes where I look at my friend's letterbox and see like what I rank like by the least popular rated things on Letterboxd and then see which people have the things ranked the highest. There you go. And it's like, oh yeah, the counselor is directly in the wheelhouse. And speaking to that, the counselor sits at a sour 34% on Rotten Tomatoes, 33% among the top critics, and it fares even worse among the audience coming in at a very rough 23%. (laughs) A lot of the critics and audience members were not on board with what they saw as sort of the pulpy absurdity of the movie. And some didn't think the dialogue was very authentic to that end. Here are some of the, negative critical responses. Andrew O'Hare for his review in Salon that the review was titled Meet the Worst Movie Ever Made with the subtitle In Hollywood's Long History of Star-Studded Devil Candy Movies, There's Nothing as Terrible as The Counselor. Oh my gosh. Going into his actual review, O'Hare said, "In the pantheon of terrible writing, By supposedly good writers, McCarthy's labored screenplay for The Counselor will forever hold an honored spot. He continued, It's like a mumblecore movie about a bunch of Sarah Lawrence philosophy majors made by coked-up rich people for $100 bajillion. And he also said, If you eat at Burger King and the food sucks, it's disingenuous to get all mad about it. This is more like having Alice Waters and Mario Batali labor in the kitchen for a while and then serve you a gray-green burger on Wonder Bread with what looks like somebody's pubic hair stuck to it, but surrounded by whimsical garnishes of fresh herbs. My goodness. Sounds like somebody wants to prove himself the better writer than McCarthy. <laughs> I, I took a lot from this one just because it, it's sometimes Please funny share. when the people are like so... Here's the thing. As a writer, when you are teeth into like something you really don't like, it's one of the most fun writing experiences. And I think O'Hare was For having sure. a lot of fun with this. Oh, yeah. So his uh, review ended cinema history is full of devil's candy productions that became seen as flops or disasters from D.W. Griffith's Intolerance to Joseph L. Mankiewicz's Cleopatra to Heaven's Gate and Ishtar and John Carter. Well, those movies are masterpieces, each and every one compared to The Counselor. I'd watch them all straight through, back to back, and several times over if I didn't ever have to see this again. It's not objectively the worst movie ever made because that's an impossible standard. It might be the worst of all Devil's Candies films, the worst ever made by people this talented. 
Okay, I need so I want to confirm something. D.W. Griffith, he made what Birth of a Nation? Is that the one I'm thinking? Of? Yeah, yeah. Wow, dude. Wow. Okay. <laughs> he okay. I'm gonna say he doesn't like the movie. Nobody else is that extreme, but I'll just for a sampling of the other hatred that the counselor evoked. Donald Clark of the Irish Times said, "Watching the Baroque catastrophe that resulted." A verbose narco thriller set along the Mexican border, one hunts desperately for useful comparisons. The bloody bling gestures unconsciously towards Oliver Stone's recent useless savages. The mechanical twist suggests a John Grisham film with a screwdriver jammed in its brain. More than anything else, however, the counselor recalls Guy Ritchie's legendarily awful revolver. This is not an illusion to be made carelessly, but everything what? is in place. The uh, <laughs> the ostentatious monologues, the impenetrable plot, the preposterous heightened violence. Might this be the worst film ever written by a Pulitzer Prize winner? It's certainly a contender. Okay. All right. Pause for a second. So first of all, this guy is going to call out Revolver as one of, as, as like a horrible movie as well. Yes. To me. Okay. He, <laughs> all right. So he's not your the savages movie. The, the Oliver Stone savages movie that has some great moments in it, but I don't mind people calling it a piece of shit, but to call Revolver a piece of shit, come on, man, especially in a world that already at this point had, the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes films, and you call out Revolver. Like, wow. Okay, a few more. A few more, and then I'll get out. Uh, yeah, sorry, out. <laughs> no worries. In his D-plus review for Entertainment Weekly, Chris Nashawati wrote, Considering the deep bench of A-list talent involved, Ridley Scott's new Southwestern Noor, The Counselor, is a jaw-dropping misfire. The dialogue is laughably pretentious. The plotting is virtually non-existent. And the performances are so broad and cartoony that you'll keep wondering if it's all some sort of prank. <laughs> Laruska Ivan Zada of Metro opined, everyone's a philosopher in a script more verbose than a parliamentary accounts committee. It's like watching a movie in another language. Claudia Puig of USA Today said, Never did drug lords, thugs, and cowboys wax as philosophically as they do in The Counselor. It certainly doesn't make them in any way believable, nor does it make them any way more intriguing to watch. Everyone's speech is awash in gaudy psycho blather and Yoda-like observations. The phony eloquence doesn't make the obfuscated and tedious story any clearer or more compelling. And... Lastly, on the negative end, Connie Ogle of the Miami Herald wrote, The counselor is more wild things than no country for old men, with which it shares a border town setting. But at least wild things knew what it was. Okay, wild things is tight. <laughs> I might argue that wild things is better than no country. <laughs> I love I love no country, but... Yeah, so uh, we're getting a sense of the taste. Now, on the <laughs> other end... Just, just for peoples. Uh, on the other end, there were actually a decent number of positive reviews. You know, it's not a high percentage of them, but there were a lot of positive reviews. A lot of them are more in like the three and a half star range where they're like, enough of this works that I kind of like mm. 
overlooks sort of things. Um, Grantland's Wesley Morris enjoyed the over the topness of the film, writing, The movie was written by an 80 year old and directed by a man who's 75, but the counselor has the heartless verve of filmmakers half their ages. It's filthy, nasty, sexy, absurd, appalling, and exhilarating. And it succeeds as a musky union of novelist Cormac McCarthy's bleakness and Ridley Scott's sense of chic. He said of the characters, they all speak in that insinuating roughhouse poetry of McCarthy's. It's a threat and a seduction at the same time. The prevailing sense of preordained hopelessness, death, and doom are standard McCarthy. He and Scott are not afraid of the ridiculous, the symbolic, the telegraphed, or the literal. The movie is shockingly, hilariously all of these things. I can imagine McCarthy has seen the tastefulness of the road and the geometrical precision of No Country for Old Men and wanted something looter and messier for his writing. Hmm. And as I sort of mentioned, a lot of people sort of gave it like a backhand, the backhanded like guilty pleasure label. Um, Eric Cohn mm-hmm. of IndieWire called it his favorite guilty pleasure of the year, saying it's a familiar world of secular finality littered with absurd and eccentric extremes. No country for old men on a bender. The Vulture's Blag Ibiri started his review. Can a movie be both a catastrophe and strangely compelling, maybe even gasp good at the same time? It seems the counselor is determined to find out. It knows it makes no sense. In fact, it rubs our faces in it. So what the hell do we make of this movie? I worry the counselor is a monster that we created. By we, I mean not just critics, but all of us who ask that such movies be about more than just the ins and outs of their respective plots. How many times have I said things like, The movie isn't really about insert description of ostensible storyline, but it's really about insert grand philosophical subject here, the way that men think of fear or love or yada, yada, yada. The counselor calls our bluff and delivers the subtext on a blood-soaked star-studded platter. Still, it shows us things obscene and hilarious, yes, but also just as often harrowing and unforgettable. We never thought we'd see it's ridiculous, but it has a ragged nobility all its own. Of note, on the positive end, Cameron Diaz was nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best WTF Moment of the Year, which we will certainly get into that WTF <laughs> moment, but it lost to Leo in The Wolf of Wall Street. To be honest, I don't know which moment it was because the whole... It's, it's tough to guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, the whole movie is sort of... WTF, maybe dwarf tossing. I don't, I don't know. But yeah. Anyway, so the counselor, just uh, to set you up, listeners, uh, the counselor is a movie with multiple decapitations, and none of those are the what the fuck moment in this movie. Um, (laughs) And before we uh, get into the defense points, on as a bit of a twist, you know who really loved the counselor? It is not Roger Ebert. He had died by that point, but it is in fact his late TV counterpart, Richard Roper, who gave the film probably it's only five out of five star A plus review. My man. (laughs) Yes. Roper said, it's a bloody great time. The counselor achieves the almost unheard of daily double of giving us the most outrageous sex scene of the year and the most unforgettably brutal murder of the year. This is a badass journey from start to finish. 
The counselor glistens like a diamond and cuts like a serrated knife. It's filled with gorgeous people speaking gorgeous prose about some of the loveliest and some of the very darkest corners of the human soul. So, Will, why is everyone wrong about the counselor? (sighs) All right. Should we start with the, the first defense point is something that was talked about a bunch up at the top, which is talking a bunch, um, mainly the dialogue in the film. Yeah. So I feel it's appropriate to bring this up at the very top of our conversation here. Uh, if you'll let me start with a tangent. Go for it. When Herman Melville, <laughs> who's, who actually incidentally is often compared, or Cormac McCarthy is often compared to Melville, as well as obviously Faulkner, etc., when Herman Melville was getting his name as a writer, he was predominantly writing adventure pieces like Taipei, sort of one of the big ones, which is a great book. But they're about they're sort of sailor stories about time in Polynesia and aboard aboard various seaworthy vessels. And they were generally they were a little more elevated than say a you know dime back novel, but they they were generally considered to be light reading and well-constructed light reading, but nothing terribly heavy. And then when he came out with Moby Dick, it was universally panned. Everyone hated this book. Mm-hmm. People were horrified by the what they saw as this gross intrusion of boring, high-minded, ridiculous, meandering philosophy and, and well, like whale anatomy, right? Um, listening to these reviews, that's what came to mind. Not that anybody who had read McCarthy or was familiar with his texts, let's say, maybe not at the movie adaptations on based on his text, but with his text would have been surprised, I think. I, I, I didn't think they'd be surprised by the dialogue in this movie, but um, certainly the world at large that was going to see a Ridley Scott movie, I think was surprised by the philosophizing in this movie and the headier dialogue. Right. But not that, again, not that Ridley Scott is somebody who's made a bunch of really daft movies. You know, there's a lot to be unpacked in Alien or Blade Runner. But yeah, so the dialogue in this movie, and this will come up in every one of our points we discuss, I think today, it's sort of the overarching theme of these reviews. It's the overarching theme of what I think is so brilliant about this. Well, I mean, for starters, I should just say for the people that haven't seen it, this movie is just like it's a series of dialogues for the most part. It's yeah. usually like yeah. two characters are in a place by themselves or, or you know, there might be like bar patrons milling about. But it's just like the counselor goes to one place and he talks to somebody and then he goes to another place and he talks to somebody. And like just for example, like. Basically, almost nothing happens for the first like hour of this movie in terms of like actual actions. It's like there's the mm-hmm. truck with drugs and it drives and gets delivered. And that's about it. And then eventually there's somebody who dies, which we'll get to. But like for a while, it's just like, oh, he's talking to his fiance. He's talking to his business partner. His fiance is talking to his business partner's girlfriend. It's like right. a lot of... So I think a lot of people were probably thrown off by that initially. So that's yeah, part of for it. sure. Yeah, and and you know, of course, and given that, given that it is this a conversation of the movie, 
if a you're not down for that which a lot of people just don't enjoy heavy heavily dialogue movies um or b if the way the dialogue is being done doesn't work for you then that's that's most of the movie out the door yeah it's one of those things where i think people you know you'll know within like 20 minutes sort of if if you're not on board with Mm -hmm. how these characters are talking to each other you're not going to you're just not going to like it or you're just not going to like it in the way that like will you appreciate it it's just like you have to be sort of like in or out and also I, i i will mention just this at the top is that partially that opening scene is i think is something that might turn off a lot of people which is just it's the counselor and his fiance fassbender and Cruz under the sheets just like doing dirty talk in a way that is you know sort of poetic but also sort of stilted and like i don't know it's it's something where you could see i could see a lot of people being like this seems like it was an 80 year old guy writing about how like bedroom talk and does it connect it to a lot of things so I think that's I think just in terms of like people jumping in and jumping on. But yeah. now I'll, I'll I'll clear the way now and let you. Yeah, go no, deeper. no. That, I mean that's a great place to start. If we can say that there are there are like sort of two sex scenes in the movie, this first <laughs> or this this first like this opening one is like it's like a dialogic sex scene, almost like it's not. It's not, I mean, later in the movie, there's a joke about whether two of these characters are having phone sex, but at that point, they aren't. Whereas right. in the opening, they sort of are having this, this dialogic sex. And the, the line that, of course, is going to make, I think, if, I think if you can survive this line and still be on board, then you're probably on board for most of the movie. Fastbender, the counselor, says to, as he's beginning to go down on, on his fiancée, he says, let me make sure I get the line right. You have the most luscious pussy in all of Christendom. Yep. Which, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a line that, so there, I mean, there's so many ways to think about this line. And one of them is like, that is the way Cormac McCarthy would write Dirty Talk. Right. And that is either, You're either like exactly it. why you don't want him to, or that is exactly why you love that he did. Yes. And it's it to me, it's the kind of line that I would never, never in my entire life would I utter that line. Right. Or but if you were writing it, me, yeah, if you were writing it, you would be like, no, I can't, I can't. You, you scratch no, it out. Yeah, I would for sure, I would for sure need to look at a Pulitzer writing that line. Like I would need to have that. <laughs> See on it in my your eye view where you're like, yeah. And be like, this. As I'm as I'm ed- as I'm self editing, I need to be able to look up and be like, okay, you, People think I'm you good. just wrote this line, but but believe in this fucking this statue on your shelf and just know that if anyone could ever, it may be you. Especially as a man who, like, the guy has written, you know, maybe five sex scenes that weren't kind of rape scenes. Not that he's like one of these rape indulgists, you know. There, there are those. He's not a, he's not a, uh, that filmmaker. Uh, yeah, Lars Van Trier. He's not like that. Where he seems to thrive on the rape scene. I, right. I don't mean to say that of McCarthy. It's just he's written a lot of brutal, brutal texts, and right. many of his characters are 
highly unsavory. They're meant to be unsavory. They're not these drawn out things. Anyway, so he's somebody that's not written a lot of romantic sex scenes. And so when he comes to write this sex scene, it is very textural and it's got phrases. Like I think luscious is used like, I mean, it's used in to refer to this, this woman's undercarriage multiple times in this one scene. And she to, you know, to our credit, to, to Ridley and Cormac's credit, it's she's uncomfortable with this dialogue herself. This is sort of establishing, well, it's establishing his character and her simultaneously by showing his comfort level with this kind of thing or his, um, maybe his, like, his perspective on himself as a male, Mm -hmm. as well as her perspective on her own sexuality, which is not prudish, but it is more conservative, and it's a little more squeamish. She giggles a bit, and and says she doesn't want to say these things. Yeah, she's a, it sort of establishes, she's sort of an naive, angelic character throughout this, and uh, it sort of establishes that sort of, gets gets a like a base for that like you could be in this sort of dirty world but i'm 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 like i'll play along but i'm not this isn't my world exactly yeah which we then see throughout i mean and you know a great part of this dialogue is that that establishes her character we see that throughout the rest of the film and one thing um just as an aside it's part of this sort of what i love about the dialogue at large is there's virtually no exposition in this movie no expositional dialogue there, uh, this could be construed as also a problem with the film, but for sure, yeah. So something I, I can't stand in a lot of movies, and this is not a lot of people don't agree with me on this, but I have a pretty hardline stance on exposition and dialogue. Mm-hmm. And this movie has virtually none of it, right? And I consider that a great success. Others may not. <laughs> yes, I would say. For some people, including partially myself, some of the things that just do not get explained in this movie, you do, it just kind of you have to just be like, okay, I'm going along for the ride. Like the characters named the counselor. Why is everybody call him the counselor? Nobody knows. Nobody addresses it. Just everybody addresses him as the counselor. And there's uh, you know plot points like that where like it took me a while to realize that like Brad Pitt's character was a part of the job and not somebody who he's just like consulting for with advice, mm-hmm. you know, and there, there's lots of times where it's like, Oh, he is talking to a character, including my favorite time, which is late in the movie where he's talking to a uh, Hefe mm-hmm. and you don't really get established. It's just like, he is now on the phone with somebody who's Mexican, so I guess he's part of the cartel. Somebody who seems important, seems connected. Right. right? There's lots of, like, uh, try and figure out what, like, the connection is here uh, to it, where it's just like, I I think it probably could have done, figured out a way to do it in, you know, not ham-handed exposition, but it does, you know, as you were saying, if you don't like any of that, it does not hold your hand at all in that sense. Right. Which sort of analogically... Um, you could say about to get to the, the sort of um, headier themes of the dialogue that it sounds like a lot of people really do not enjoy. Analogically, the the lack of exposition in terms of plot points and, and narrative arc could be extrapolated to the the lack of um, or th- there's this lack of application of the ph- philosophizing to the to the plot of the movie. Right. Right. So, like the first big chunk of that we get as I recall, is when he, when the counselor is going and meeting with this 
diamonds. Yeah, diamond jewelers artists, meeting with like a jeweler, yeah. I suppose, in, in Amsterdam. And they're having a conversation that you can tell from the jump is a conversation about more than just the stones that they're holding in their hands. And yeah, it's, it, we, they don't ever get to the point of telling us exactly what it's about. I, I like that personally, but then this conversation, the counselor notices that the jeweler is um, Semitic, right. And right. connected to like a, a group of Spanish Semites, if I recall correctly, Spanish Jews. And the jeweler makes a side note. He's just like, yeah, you know, I something to the effect of like any country that drives out its Jews lives to regret it. Right. Something to that effect. And the counselor's like, what do you mean by that? He's like, oh, you don't even know. Well, yeah, he basically, he basically says like, you know, he's like, actually, yeah, don't worry. We'll talk about the diamonds. He's like, no, I want to know. Like, tell me, tell me right. about this. And it becomes like his theory on like the death of culture. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. It's this, it's, it's, I'm not well-versed enough in a lot of, um, I'm a bit of a dilettante when it comes to philosophy and I don't know how widely stretched this, this concept is, but the idea in his case is that the the son of God is, is what defines Western culture. And that that idea came from the Jews and that the Jews are now living in contemporary Western culture. And I think he, he has this very great way of describing it. It's like wearing, like their uncle's overcoat that doesn't quite fit the way it's supposed to. And these sort of, um, these notions of like, you're living in this system that, that operates along your rules because it's following your, your God, the Abrahamic God or whatever. And, but it's not your system. It's just a system that has kind of co-opted your, your structure as it were. Right. And so, and, and does that, what does that mean in the movie? Right. I think it's something that, that a lot of people find consternating. Yeah. So yeah, that's a little bit that philosophy application. So sort of like the, because it is just, you know, it continues to be a series of dialogue, even once like action starts. And it's sort of like the first half of the movie, everybody's like, Hey, the counselor, do you really, is this really, you'd want to be involved in this? I don't think you should like that's mm-hmm. sort of the tone of everybody's conver- conversation. And then like once shit goes down, it's less like, yeah, you're kind of screwed. Like, you can't do anything now. And th- th- those are yeah. so, so it's sort of like there's all these moments where it is like could be interesting, you know, philosophy and interesting things they're saying. But when it's not really, it seems to be like plot is a, an issue for some people with this movie. And it seems to be like you're kind of just like talking around the plot as opposed mm-hmm. to like it being an active part. And so, again, that's uh, like mileage may vary thing. And I think another thing about the sort of the dialogue in this movie is it sort of like it almost becomes like these silos where it's just like, oh, you the counselor is talking to Javier Bardem's character. It's like, oh, he's going to be just like filthy and talking about like sex and murder and like all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And like he's talking to Brad Pitt's character. Oh, it's going to be these like slick, like warding dialogues and things like that and yeah. talks to his you know his fiance it's going to be like these sort of panicked keeping details from each other sort of thing so right. it sort of becomes these like it sort of falls into like a sort of like oh i'm with this character i kind of know what to expect now uh, until like random people start talking so right generally there's there's one school of thought in, in writing that's like every single piece of of a text ought to contribute completely to 
the larger text, right? And it ought to be, it ought to be necessary to it. And then there are other thoughts about writing that say, well, no, writing is just a place to throw your thoughts and a place to dump stuff. Right. And so going back to like the Melville example, people hated, hated uh, the whale, um, Moby Dick, because so much of it felt digressive and unnecessary and sort of ancillary to the core text. Right. Uh, whereas Melville was like, no, this is my, for reasons I've decided and for reasons that, you know, may be unpackable by the right scholar and maybe, maybe can be, I've decided this is the place to put out my philosophy. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that I think is the success of Cormac McCarthy's writing across the board is his ability to find those opportunities to, to sort of just wax poetic about things that he thinks ought to be discussed and ought to be raised that maybe contribute to the tone or contribute to the vibe or the energy of the overall piece without, um, without being what the piece is about. And I find that to be a delicacy that's lacking in most screenwriting. Yeah. It's definitely like, I don't think anything McCarthy does here is like unintentional, you know, it's not like, I sure. like he's like throwing together these random things that it doesn't have anything to do. Like I, I, it feels like there is a narrative thread of, you know, doom and nihilism and everything like going throughout this, but it's not, you know, it's not easily parsable. It's a reason probably why the audience score is even lower than the like critic score where it's like, Oh yeah. If you're just, if you want a movie, especially if you like, see, it's like a Ridley Scott movie with all these A-list actors that I no, it's just like, right. why is it suddenly like a series of my dinner with Andres, <laughs> you know, where it's just like, <laughs> it's sure. just like brutal. My, my dinner with Andre, except one of us is going to have like be decapitated by the end of this. Right. Well, and people, people respond so negatively to you. I mean, you hear this criticism of tons of movies where people are like, Oh, that, that dialogue doesn't sound real or that dialogue doesn't sound natural, or nobody talks like that, is what you often hear people say. Of course, anybody that's like really studied writing knows that nobody talks like any good writing. Writing isn't good if it sounds the way people actually talk. It becomes tedious and exhausting, and that's why nobody likes mumblecore anymore. (laughs) But the thing that that I think people don't quite identify or realize, or the the thing I don't realize, this is my problem, I guess, is how, how people choose these screenwriters who write very unlike people speak, like extremely unlike people speak, how they choose the ones they love. So two that come to mind for me, in addition to, you know, this one stint of Cormac McCarthy's are Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. These are both really dialogue and monologue heavy writers in their films. And people generally, I mean, a lot of people hate Kevin Smith and a lot of people hate Quentin Tarantino, but generally they're regarded as like, at Pretty least people writers. like at least people like you know Kevin Smith may have fallen off for a lot of people, but most people are like, well, Clerks is pr- pretty good, and you exactly. know, like Chasing yeah, Amy like or everybody, whatever. right? At least everybody likes Clerks. I like everything up through like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Probably, I think that was like the last really good one. But anyway, these are people who write they're so incredibly unlike their characters would speak. And yet people, I think, love that about these things. They love, people love to reference clerk dialogue. And they're like, oh, it's just like this kind of stuff my friends and I talk about. And it's like, well, it may be the kind of thing you and your friends talk about, but it's not even remotely the way you and your friends talk about it. Right. Or like Quentin Tarantino, I think he gets away with it more when it's like, 
you know, something like Django where it's like pulpy and like, I think part of the mm-hmm. counsel, part of the counselor is that it like, like it's very absurd, but it like takes everything very seriously. Like even the, yeah. there, there's things that are humorous here, but they're not like humorous to the characters. Totally. It's so, it's so, it's so sincere. And that's something that I, 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 I love in any art. I love just like through and through sincerity, whether that's from the artist, whether that's from the characters. I'm, I'm so tired of the, um, the kind of meta-textual references and the camera, like the fourth wall breaking and the irony that is so thick in a lot of contemporary culture and contemporary film and television and, and even contemporary literature. There's a lot of this where everyone's kind of afraid to be that sincere and everyone's kind of um, there's this, there's this, I don't know if it's an insecurity or what it is, but there's this emotion that seems to pervade contemporary culture. That's like at all points, you must let your audience know that you're self-aware and that you're not actually taking this seriously. Or if you are, it's because you like, you're taking it seriously because you know that it's surprising or interesting or ironic to take it seriously. Kind of like the pulp horror revival. Right. I mean, this is sort of a tangential example, but like, I hate the very concept of like the emo nights that people do now. Yes. Where it's just like, where it's because it's all this music and it's like people coming together, like people in their thirties being like, Hey, like, isn't it funny we used to like this music? And it's just like, no, it's not funny. No, like, it was good like, shit. Like, 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 I still legitimately, I can listen to, like, a Saves the Day, like, through being cool or, you know, say 100%. what you are. And I'm like, oh, no, this is good. This is good music. This isn't like, ha ha, like, 100%. let's dress up and, like, dig out a Hot Topic tea from, like, like a bin that you have in your garage and then go like hang out with your friends and be like, Oh my gosh, it's that taking back Sunday song. Absolutely. Like call me a man child all you want, but I'm 34 years old and I can still only listen to tell your friends like once every two years. Cause it fucks me up. (laughs) (laughs) These like, why, why would you, why would you do your younger self a disservice like that? If you ever liked the thing and you ever had sincerely held these feelings of whatever it is, heartbreak or isolation or, or, or alienation or what, you know, the, the things that music spoke to, why, why would you then go and be like, Oh yeah, I, I'm too cool. I never felt that way. Like, and then you can like, yeah. but you can then like unironically like Taylor Swift. It's just like, no, you that's exactly. the same. You can you exactly. be in the thirties and like yeah. still like that. Like that's not a shout out yeah. Taylor Swift. She has a bunch of really good music, but it's also like you, it's okay for like, a 30 something to like that, but like not. Yeah. Anything. And it's, it's because it's because the Taylor Swift's of the world are, they're built into it. You know, she's the biggest pop star in the world and she's built into this culture that is this self-awareness culture. And that is this like, Oh, I'm, you know, I, I, I know it's pop, it's pop, it's fun. Just have fun, get over it, whatever. And there's this, you know, if any, eh, I'm not, I don't listen to a lot of her music, so I can't say anything specific, but it, I don't listen to any of her music. I can't say anything specific. I'm a Carly guy. Um, but I, it's, it's, and I mean, honestly, that's something I like about Carly Rae Jepsen while I'm on, while I'm creating the topic to be on is that it's so 
with a handful of exceptions, it is so sincere. Right. It is such sincere pop. And Taylor may go there. I, I don't know. Um, but it, the culture around it, this, you know, you talk to people about Carly Rae Jepsen, they're like, oh, yeah, like, call me maybe. It was, like, kind of funny. Like, I couldn't help but like it. It's like, motherfucker, didn't you, like, don't you want to like things? Like, don't you want to sincerely feel things? And, like, what do you mean you couldn't help but like it? Did you, like, were you trying to not enjoy life? And you're like, oh, fuck, she got to me. It's like, man, that sucks. Anyway, yeah, so to bring it back, like, the The counselor. The counselor, much like Carly Rae Jepsen. Much like Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> the sincerity is just so there. And I think it's felt by Cormac McCarthy because he's an old-ass man. And he's been writing, like, this kind of story, this kind of border story forever. And somehow he keeps doing it differently, whether you think they're all successful. He keeps doing it something new with it. And the fact that these characters are all... There's not a sense of irony in any of them. And, and this is something I'll probably want to bring up in later points, too. But it's just, yeah, it's it, these are people having these heavy conversations in unnatural ways because the author and the creators of the film feel sincerely that these are germane topics to to the modern world and the world that has created this cartel system, right? Mm-hmm. And that to me is how these things contribute. These these maybe seemingly divergent topics contribute and become essential. And I just think just on a, you know, as a final note, maybe on the dialogue thing, just on a word to word level, the texture of this dialogue and the word choice in these things and the, a lot of those reviews called them verbose. I would argue quite the opposite that so much gets said in the economy of words with the way Cormac writes. And it's, I mean, this is sort of a weird example. It's a very specific one, but when the first time the counselor meets with Westray, they're in this cafe and they get their drinks and Westray toasts and he says something to like something very Shakespearean, um, a plague, a pox to all their miserable selves or whatever. Something very just sort of gloomy and, and a bit like, you know, he's kind of making a joke, but also kind of saying like, fuck this dirty world around us. And the counselor, and there's no explanation for that. Again, no exposition. This is sort of the first crude thing you've heard this character say. And the counselor is like, do you always toast like that? And all he says, all Westray says in response before jumping immediately onto another topic is increasingly. Like, that is so, that says so much about him. Mm-hmm. That says so much about the world, so much about the tone. And it's just a single word. And it's, it feels like the last word that any other screenwriter would have put in that place. Right. And I just, I love that. And I feel that the movie is just full of those moments. Right. So, you know, taking off that idea of all the dialogue, we should probably hop into a second point, since I think that might have set the record for our longest single point in the show's history. Sorry. No, no, I I enjoy it because also it covered, I think we're going, it sort of covered probably like three more of our topics. Um, So uh, the second point you had in defense was sort of the way that the intellectualism and the depravity sort of go hand in hand in this movie. Yeah, so so we've been talking a lot about the sort of, you know, the philosophy of these characters and the way they speak in this very educated, I think mean, there's a, one of the reviews made the the jab Sarah Lawrence way, which, fuck, what's wrong speaking in a Sarah Lawrence way? It just means you've thought a lot about thinking. It's not the worst thing. Shout out Sarah Lawrence. Um, but <laughs> uh, I went to a liberal arts school with a lot of high-minded shit too. 
but so you have you have that and there's a lot of that going on but we predominantly see that um well i mean it's it's interspersed into every conversation which is great but sort of a long i don't even want to say alongside but interwoven with that and in the middle of these conversations particularly the ones that the counselor has with um his his business partner reiner are these moments of utter sort of yeah depravity these these very debased these very crude base kind of um largely misog well vaguely misogynistic i wouldn't say pointedly misogynistic but like the way misogynists speak <laughs> Maybe, yeah i mean reiner definitely is as points where he's like straight up misogynistic uh i would definitely say like a lot like the majority of this dialogue if not misogynistic is incredibly like masculine or like machismo uh you know like yeah in that sense yeah it's very it's yeah the, the reason i i think i'm hesitant to use the word misogynistic is not to save anyone from that characterization but rather that it it's almost so exclusively exclusively in this in this male paradigm this male conversational paradigm that it's almost indifferent to or sidestepping the the direction required from misogyny Maybe that's a bit too abstract of a way to put it, but effectively they're, they're talking a lot about women's bodies and they're talking a lot about sex with women and the way women behave with them sexually. And Reiner has, the character is, he definitely has issues with women. He talks about, you know, past um, relationships that didn't go his way and has colorful things to say about them, all of which have a texture similar to, um, you have the most luscious pussy in all of Christendom. <laughs> yep, that again. <laughs> yeah, um, already the most I've used that p word in years. Uh, it's 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 okay. Th- th- this podcast will have an explicit take, so we're we're okay. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think that was unavoidable <laughs> with me on it. So yeah, they'll they'll have these conversations about you know past women they've been with or the current women they're with, and or there's this long conversation in their club about just this event that happened with um, another business partner's cousin who didn't speak perfect English and going and having this, they played a prank on this guy and he goes and ends up sort of getting the better of the prank, right? They thought it was going to go terribly for him. Right. He ba- they basically have him go say something filthy to a woman and she like notices that like he's being set up. So then yeah. she ends up hooking up with him and being like to stick it in their faces or something. I don't, it's one of yeah. those like weird, like bro-y, like, you know, uh, again, Reiner is very much like a rich fashion bro kind of character yeah yeah and i mean maybe that's maybe it's a good time to sort of characterize him like so up until we meet reiner which we have happens relatively early on we're in the counselor's world and we see him in these sort of beautiful vaguely modern homes and um he's very well dressed in suits he's very put together very clean and then we see him diamond shopping in amsterdam and he has this very clean arena um and then we we meet reiner formally and he's in the middle of this like he's one of these guys that has a party going on at his kind of tacky sort of rich person plot and the whole thing has this uh this demna balenciaga and um, michelle gucci texture to it this like neo sleaze yeah. look where it's the silk black it's the silk button downs it's the like 
I mean, Ryan himself has this crazy spiked hair and he's always got radical glasses on, sunglasses. And so it's this complete 180 from the counselor's much more subdued sort of professional, clean, modern environment. And so we see them both brought into this. And then we see um, Reiner's conversation is he's the one that's starting all these very lewd topics. And occasionally the counselor sort of egg him on and like continue to inquire. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't like illusion, shut but... down. The counselor's sort of inquisitive, but I don't know. He's sort of generally fast better. It's like he's sort of a dope, but he's also an inquisitive dope. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's almost a like you're never really sure if it's naivety or if it's stupidity or what it is or if it's just it, it just uh, or if he's just a guy who like has kind of yeah it's it seems like he's sort of this guy who sort of comes from another world and is like well I've been successful in everything else I do so like yeah I'm gonna uh, I'll get in on this like drug trade it'll be fine like I can get out <laughs> if I want to you know like I'm I'm I've got, I've, I've got money and I'm I, you know I'm set up and. Yeah, yeah, the whole hubris theme of the movie. But so Reiner, in his his very decadent lifestyle, he um, he represents this. He's like the crime side of things, right? We never get a very close glimpse of. We get sort of abstract glimpses of the cartel itself, and so Reiner's the like he's the guy, the greedy guy that wants the money, that wants the parties, that wants the sex and all that. But even so, he has these conversations in the most carefully written sort of poetically phrased filthy ways and that that intellectualism is still there and it almost it almost feels like what it made me think of and part of this again is the the costumes i'm sure which we'll talk about in depth at another point but it's it almost feels like Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet at certain yeah, points i can see that the the, the complete sort of in this case, it's not an anachronism. It's just sort of a, a, a conflicting textures of, of the things he's saying and the way he's saying them. It's like taking Shakespearean dialogue and stuffing it into this completely alien context where sometimes you can't quite even tell if the line was delivered exactly in the, mo- in the right way it should have been almost because it's so weird to see this body language and this energy around this phrase. Right. So I I think we should like actually set up a couple of like what these examples are. So like the first time they're at the pool, you know, party thing and he's like, let's go into this room. Make sure that there's not anybody listening. And they talk about business for a while. And then all of a sudden he launches into this thing about I I forget what the actual name is, but it's essentially a machine that you can put around somebody's neck and strangles them to death and they can't stop it no matter what they do. It's just like a wire cutter that just like. Titans yeah, nonstop. Yeah. And he's just like yeah. giving it in extreme, like very nuanced little details, like, you know, as if it's something that he's like watched like a, a National Geographic documentary about. It is like yeah. describing yeah. it like in this like sort of florid, extremely gritty detail to the counselor who's like sort of who is like aghast, but also like sitting there like listening compelled and interested in it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah he's he's definitely intrigued and it's like it's funny because the way he the way reiner sets this up is in i feel like in a typical movie with your typical screenplay he'd be like man you know what's fucked up that the cartel does they do this crazy thing it like kills you it's this thing you wrap around your neck 
and then it chokes you and you die. And that would sort of be the, the, you know, maybe according to reviewers, the more efficient way of delivering that. That would also like set it up as just like it using it as a plot device to be like, this is how messed up the cartel is, but it's not really about the cartel when he's describing it. It's no. not trying to yeah. like set you up to be like afraid of the cartel for the rest of the movie. It's just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's Chekhov's gun in this particular movie's case, but the reason it being, it being described that way is as much about Reiner yeah. as it is about the thing, as it is about the cartel, as it is about the audience and the counselor being the one who's hearing about this. Yeah. So it's one of these things like we talked about earlier, there are all these moments where the, the actor, where the characters are like, I can't advise you counselor, right? Or the jeweler says like, this diamond, this is a cautionary diamond. And then there's another point later in the movie where somebody refers to something. I think Westbury calls something saying cautionary. It's something that should, you see this, and, and Reiner's character theoretically is telling Counselor this as a way of like, this, these are the stakes you're getting yourself into. And the Counselor, instead of being horrified by this in his hubris, doesn't even see himself as attached to the conditions of that. Like he's, he's just sort of, he's like, huh, that's interesting. That's kind of fucked up. Um, and he doesn't relate that to his own scenario or his own situation at all, um, which maybe seems obtuse to a lot of watchers. To me, it's an interesting deflection of his, or it's a projection of his personality. Right. I mean, and also the the scene that we were talking about is the most like obvious foreshadowing. I think I have mm-hmm. seen in yeah. a movie in a very long time where you're like, well, that's definitely happening later in the movie. Yeah, it, it does. Right. But of course, of course it doesn't happen to the counselor, which <laughs> is a bit of subversion. It's a bit. It's a bit. Yeah. A I bit. mean, and I feel like when we're talking about this depravity and Reiner, I feel like this is probably a good time to talk about the car. I feel like we can't not talk about the yeah, car. Man. So in a later conversation, this is, I think, after they talk about the weird, the guy having sex who doesn't speak English. Yeah, the weird hookup, yeah. He talks about uh, Cameron Diaz's character, his, his girlfriend, at uh, a night they have um, out driving, I, I will say. Uh, do you, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, so, so this, well, this is another moment in which the counselor is coming in completely naive to something and... Um, the character he's talking to tries to dismiss it, tries to say, oh, I don't want to talk about it. The counselor insists, much like the diamond guy with the, his, his philosophy of Western religion. Anyway, he, basically, Reiner's talking about a time he went out and he was driving in his fancy car with, with Malkina, his girlfriend, and she stops the car, pulls down her panties, gets out of the car, and proceeds to, and this is described much more I don't know if the word is eloquently, but let's just say much more. Vividly, maybe at least. Vividly? (laughs) Proceeds to, quote, fuck the car. Climbs on the windshield. Yes. Yeah, spreads her legs. Great split technique over the windshield of this little sports car and proceeds to grind up and down it. Again, having taken her panties off with Reiner still sitting in the, in the, the passenger seat of the car. Kind of watching in like awestruck, like horror and fascination. He's not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, well, you know, I think he's, he's like, was I, you know, was I turned on? Well, I don't know. It was too. It was all too. He describes it as being all too gynecological. Yes, that, and, that yeah, which, you know puts too gynecological alone, to be sexy. I think was the, yeah puts 
so many images in your head of what he like that word doesn't he also uses the term sea urchin i believe oh my god catfish catfish that was catfish, catfish. i think was the word and so this is so this is the kind of thing where it's like all right this is this is a very distasteful way of talking about, well, A, about talking about this intimate moment at all. One could argue that Malkina did this so that he would talk about it. And like, she knew she did this knowing it would become public information and seems to be part of her character. But this is a distasteful way to talk about a woman's um, body. And so in that regard, it's, it's showing Reiner as this kind of misogynist guy, but it's also just, he's he's not doing it. it's it's weird because he's he's doing it from that that the sort of inverse misogyny well not inverse the, the sort of, typically when we talk about misogyny there's the aggression side of things and then there's this sort of like the the flip side of it not the flip side just another side of it i suppose is the almost like indignant vulnerable i've been hurt by this kind of side of things where the, he talks a lot about women being mysterious and women being trouble. And yeah, like, he's sort of more, there's a part of him that's more like misogynistic in like a scared little boy way than yeah, like, yeah, you know, this machismo guy that he like is portraying himself to be. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He's somebody that um, talks about his desire to be with powerful or smart women. Now they're all, who knows what the women know. And, and there's this just kind of, yeah, classic mystery of woman type misogyny with him. But you, you go and you find out that he's actually just deeply, deeply kind of not only in love with Malkina, as it seems, but just the weaker, the sort of dominated in the relationship. Yeah. Despite what his bravado may want, right. may project him feeling. He's like, it's a fascination almost where it's just like, I don't understand. And that's like drawing me closer where it's just like, I can't yeah. let go because she's more interesting than I am. Yeah. And of course, talking about this from his perspective so much just is doing no service to the incredible character of Malkina that Cameron Diaz plays throughout this movie to a T. Just this, I mean, I can't even say to a T because I can't think of many characters like her. Ostensibly, yeah, we should probably describe, we haven't really described what her role is. So she's the girlfriend. <laughs> We're not doing any exposition on this ourselves. Yeah, well, it's hard. It's like the the, the whole movie was like in that two sentences where it's just like he gets messed up in drug dealing and yeah. uh, things go yeah. bad. Because again, there's like yeah. almost no plot. So anyway, there's lots of like, why did the drugs get stolen? Like the drugs get stolen and like, there's de like a decapitated motorcycle rider who was having a truck, you know, the thing to drive the truck. And you, it's like all these like, what is behind all this? And it turns out there is a uh, plotting, scheming woman behind all of this. Yeah. To be clear, not in any sort of like women are the the downfall of man. No, of more like that <laughs> closer That's to being Ryan like she's it. smarter than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. And just as a, she's Barbadian, I think is her providence yeah, officially. From Barbados. Movie, she has pet cheetahs. That's how we first see her is watching her pet cheetahs hunting in the desert. The cheetah budget was good for this movie. There's lots of, uh, it was, cheetah it was. And she has a big cheetah tattoo on herself and through the whole thing, the way her makeup is done, the clothing she wears, there's through the she's she is a a predator cat through the whole movie. Like that is 
that is maybe the clearest metaphor in the whole movie yeah. is that she is toying with She is on the hunt, yes. They are and, her little mice that she opportunities. is swatting. Yeah, very much to just sort of like, like a cat, sit back, wait for the opportunity, and then cunningly sneak in and, and do the most vicious kill you could never imagine coming from this beautiful creature kind of thing. And then this sex scene is just sort of the, well, this, I mean, sex scene is, I don't know if that's the right term or not. This, this masturbation scene, perhaps. Yeah. This WTF MTV movie awards moment. That's right. That's uh, right. That's that's the way to put it. It is not, I will say in terms of car fucking movies, I do prefer Titan to uh, the counselor, but uh, that is more, I prefer Titan, uh, the French movie from a few years ago. That's about, Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, you should watch Titan. You would like Titan. It is quite, uh, it is messed up. It is, though it is about uh, fucking a car and getting pregnant um, from the car. Okay. Uh, okay. But it is, there's a <laughs> lot to that movie, um, which I really like. It was one of my favorite movies, I guess. What would that have been? Last year? Uh, well, not last I'll year, 2021. Um, check out Titan if you want. If this doesn't satiate your appetite for <laughs> women having sex with cars, which is a sentence. Ugh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a sentence. It's a sentence that takes you deep into deviantart. Yeah, Titan. Um, I think Crash by J.G. Ballard. That's yeah, there, there's too. there's multiple. There, there's You have yeah. a genre. If that's your kink, you are actually decently represented. <laughs> in the cinematic space (laughs) so yeah amongst all this depravity and you know this intellectualism sort of kind of yings and yangs a little bit with the third point of defense for this movie that you have which is sort of like the quiet and loud aspect i think you think you mentioned how it's sort of like politics punctuated by violence yeah so we've talked a lot about the talking and how this is ultimately a conversation movie which uh, when I when I use the term politics here, I mean in the most sort of general classical sense of interhuman relationships. Right? Yeah, not we're not. T- there's no uh, politics in terms of like the U.S. better patrol the border. Better. Yeah, delightfully, thrillingly, joyously, none of that shit <laughs> on either side. But what there is, is is a great deal of conversation about the way humans relate to one another. We've, we've talked a lot about some of these and things in the broad strokes and some of the specifics, whether that's co-opting of religion or deals gone bad or whatever it is. But the majority of these conversations are, yeah, ultimately about humans and humans interacting with one another and cover a wide swath of kind of the, I don't know, the, the human political experience, I think, in that regard. And much like much like life, not that realism should ever be a goal of movies, I don't think, but much like life, these long conversations and these moments of, of let's call them relative inaction, that I guess many people found boring, that I found stimulating into themselves, are punctuated by these, uh, these moments of shocking at times and just very, very intense, brief um stabs of violence yeah so for for a thriller for a thriller i should say that this is like not a lot of it doesn't have a super high body count i think there's probably like five or six people who die in this movie yeah and nobody there's literally no violence or physical confrontation or anything 
for the first hour and 15 minutes of this movie and then somebody gets decapitated and then it's just like yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then he's not the last person to get decapitated <laughs> but yeah it's definitely in like bursts as opposed to being like there's like one scene that's sort of like a chase shootout but even that lasts probably two minutes maybe mm-hmm. and again it's mostly a talkie but then when those moments come it just is a very stark contrast yeah yeah especially because these these scenes come in as quietly as the dialogue scenes do for the most part right and they're you can tell they're setting up for something different the dialogue scenes are mostly two people walk into a room and sit down together they're very they're very simply structured that way but these scenes have different setup and one of them the this first decapitation scene just to describe it briefly um one of the men that malkina has contracted to sort of interrupt this drug deal that the counselor and Reiner and Westray have going on. We sort of follow him around, not quite knowing what he's up to. We see him and a partner of his watching from a distance as this motorcyclist that we've gotten glimpse of, glimpses of in previous scenes sits down, exchanges something with somebody at, dis- at a distance. They're kind of doing a stakeout, watch this guy sort of thing. And then we find out that what they need from him, he's putting his helmet and then a little bit later, we see the, the guy that was watching him go to a car or a motorcycle, motorcycle dealership. And he walks up to a motorcycle with a tape measure and he just stands in front of it and roughly measures, you don't totally know what, but measures the height of this motorcycle, but a little bit more than the height of this motorcycle and walks out. Yeah, so, so he then pulls up to the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and opens up the back of his opens up the trunk of his truck and pulls this metal wire across the road wraps it around a post on the other side and then tests the floodlights on his truck and still don't totally know what's going on yeah and he's very meticulous like he's adjusting the tension he's Mm -hmm. like it's like this scene plays out you know pretty they they don't rush this it's just like i need to tighten a little bit because it's a little too low or you know you know, it's very, yeah. he seems to be in complete control of what he's doing. And you have a sense of what it might be, but you're still like, is this what I think might happen? Yeah. Yeah. And you ironically don't, it, ironically, the whole setup takes longer than any of the action that follows. But basically what he's been, you find out what he's been setting up to do is to catch this, this motorcyclist as he's driving by. We've learned at about 200 miles an hour um, earlier in the movie Catch him as he's driving by, flashes lights so the guy looks up on his bike in the middle of the night just to get his head high enough for this wire to cut his head off. Just <laughs> lop it off, one clean like Lop it off. Clean motorcycle cut, keeps going. Crashes, yeah. Head stays back. Yeah, and then he walks over, picks up the helmet, shakes the head out of it, and then grabs whatever was in the helmet and, and walks away. Yeah. And it, the whole that whole that moment that violent moment you know it's it's like it's all of two seconds that the actual violence is right after like again after like an hour and 15 minutes of like nothing happening and then all of a sudden yeah, it's like, like two seconds of, and of, like there's a dead body of dialogue in like rarefied luxurious locations conversations being had exclusively by rich men and women about things that you know are crime adjacent, crime related, and they they discuss brutal murders and deaths, and and um, at this point they've discussed snuff films and things like that, and other 
another big foreshadower in the movie. But nothing has gone wrong yet. And so this is this this lopping off of this guy's head is when things begin to go wrong. And it's this kind of like this Volta point in the movie, I suppose, that doesn't particularly change the the energy. Still the majority of the movie thereafter is conversations. But they have they suddenly have a completely different tone. Well yeah, it's sort of like that point where I made earlier where it's sort of like at the halfway point, it's just like everybody being like, Hey counselor, I'm not sure if you want to be in here and like decapitation yeah. Uh, counselor, it's too late for you now. <laughs> everything's everything's gone to shit. Just like that's exactly. the point where it's just like, oh, here's where the movie flips. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then we we see more conversation as this information gradually starts to get out. And then we have another brief moment of violence, this this on the road shootout we referred to earlier, that is kind of a it's really the most cartel activity that we see in yeah the it's, it's the people that stole the car uh stole the septic tank with all the drugs in it and like another a group of the cartel cops to try and like get it off them faking being cops yeah yeah um basically getting getting back what malkina's people got away from them in the first place effectively undoing all the damage of this drama which is kind of one of the craziest things, right? It's like the cartel who end up being the, the people who uh, do the most physical harm in this, um, in this movie to our main characters, not, they don't actually get screwed over in the end because they get back what's theirs. And it's, it is the, what, they force, what they see as the transgression of the counselor because he is indirectly, very indirectly through a client of his just co- through coincidence, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, connected to this motorcyclist that got killed. The cartel is like, well, that's connection up for us. Um, <laughs> I think Javier Bardem's character has a great line. I think it was his, or it might've been Westray. I can't remember which one of them had it, Brad Pitt or Javier Bardem. But they said, um, the cartel has heard of coincidences. They've just never seen one. I think, yeah, I think, I think that was I think that was Restray in like in their like oh no everything's fucked uh, yeah pool meeting fucked, where right. he's just like give me some give me a glass of hemlock yeah yes yes exactly um, the implication being of course like they don't care if this is a consequence it may it probably isn't it might not be in their business it doesn't matter you're fucked either way yeah and so yeah that that head lopping scene even though the cartel gets theirs back everyone is fucked from that point onward. Mm-hmm. Uh, except Malkina somehow because she just managed to keep her distance but so it's this yeah it's this like I don't know it, again not that I think realism should ever be a goal of film but I find it so compellingly realistic or almost compellingly like mundane in its realism in that the majority of the experience of the characters we're seeing particularly our, our titular character the counselor is conversation he's a counselor that's what he does he's a lawyer he talks he has conversations in nice settings where he's the one in control and if things don't go his way then that's not a big deal that's not a problem usually because he doesn't really have anything on the line and so he's got this he's got this hubris about everything particularly given where he lives and the kinds of cases we we suspect he might work on particularly when dealing with with mexicans Right. Right. And in in every position, he's been on the good side of the glass when talking to a Mexican. 
And so it's just impossible for him to even consider the possibility of him being, you know, the, the, the victim in, or the, the underpowered in this interaction. And so you have these, these moments of violence that, that yeah, come about in, in a sort of a realistic cadence, right? If, con- if life is 90% conversations and then 10% fucked up moments of action, that is how this movie is structured. And I love that. It's also that the counselor, you know, being a lawyer and I think, you know, and being like a slick guy, I think he very much and, you know, this might bleed into the next point a little bit. He very much does not fathom. And again, it's is he naive or is he stupid or what that he can't talk himself out of any situation? Yeah. Yeah. The the first thing he tries to do when he when he's informed that things went poorly is like, well, let me talk to him. I'll explain this. Westray is like, you're not, that's, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Like, like, so for example, he, the, cause the motorcycle runner guy who gets decapitated is the son of Rosie Perez. Who's like an inmate. It seems like she's court appointed. Yeah. Yeah. She got, he got court appointed to her case and she, you know, again, they don't tell you like half character motivations and who people exactly are is never laid out. Yeah very clearly in this but it seems like oh she must be like somebody murderous cartel adjacent who's got enough power to like get some stuff done even behind bars but not Mm -hmm. you know is an unsavory character and it's just like fast mentor is talking to Pitt. he's like well i'll just talk to her he's like oh no she wants you like dead she's like for sure gonna like kill (laughs) you like what are we what are we doing here like no she's Gonna, he's like, but I got her son because he got like a speeding ticket because he drives 200 miles per hour on his bike. And it's just like, well, I got him out. I like bailed him out. And it's just like, well, yeah, now you bailed him out and he got killed. So like that's going to yeah. be on you because like if you hadn't bailed him out, he wouldn't be killed right now. And it's just like, but I did what she told me to do. And, you know, he's like yeah. gets, gets that whimpering panic a lot when he's um he doesn't like actually whimper, but that's like the behind his like trying to be cool demeanor. It's just like, like a scared little puppy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me in the, in the conversation when, when uh, the mother is trying, is talking to the counselor and saying, will you get my son off? She's like, yeah, you got to pull her for speeding. And he's like, how fast was he going? And she's like 200 miles an hour. And he's like, what is that? That's not a speed. No, that's no, because he says two. She says two hundred, and he's like two hundred. Like that's that's not a speed. He doesn't say yeah, miles per hour. That. That's not. Yeah, right, right. He's like, what is that? That's not a speed. That's somebody's <laughs> weight. <laughs> it's like uh, just that 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 phrasing. You just don't find that kind of. I don't know. Yeah. You, you do. You, I that mean that that, that that's a, actually like one of the few points where it's like very clearly like a joke putting in oh yeah yeah, yeah like, for sure uh which is uh, sort of few and far between it here but it, that was definitely yeah. a moment where it's just like oh you're supposed to actually laugh at this and not yes. like at the absurdity of it like fun fun bit of dialogue right there yeah yeah i mean another bit of specifically around this character like i said everything sort of comes back to the dialogue but this sort of works with the politics and violence thing the motorcyclist character we're introduced to him uh formally when he's going to pick up some dog food at this shack in the middle of the desert and he gets in line to pay for his dog food and he's behind this, this woman in front of him. 
And she turns around and sees his dog food. She's like, oh, you, you're, she's like, you have a dog? And he's like, no, I don't have a dog. And he goes on to describe that this is actually the best diet plan he's ever been on. And he's like, you just carry a couple of these around and you, they, they, they like kill your hunger entirely. He's like, I just always have a bag of these on me. I lost 27 pounds in 30 days or whatever last time I did these. And she's noticeably interested. She's just like, sort of can't believe you know it's sort of like is he fucking with me is yeah serious? it's a sort of fascination like what what are you what is happening yeah. here? and at one point he's like yeah like no it's totally fine he's like i mean one time i eventually woke up in the hospital but like really i, I would recommend this to anybody and she's like well wait what you but you said you woke up in the hospital did you have like a reaction to it or something he's like no i was licking my balls in the middle of the road and i got hit by a car so, and then he just like walks away turned, yeah yeah he just walks away effectively saying it turned himself into a dog i guess but just to like end this pleasant little i mean he was fucking with her from the jump we knew that but it just shows this like i don't know it shows so many things the structure of this of the story he's telling that he like dropped that woke up in the hospital thing before she then came back to it it shows this like intellectual construction from the slimiest of criminals we see, who then we later see has beautiful, like modern, very tasteful, sophisticated furniture in his house that is an, an abandoned airline hangar. And he, and he does have a dog. Own. He was just getting it for and his he dog. Does have a dog. Yeah, and it's just like this, just, yeah, again, conversation, 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 out of nowhere, slap across the face, violence or, or verbal violence, right? Yeah, I think that's the, like, I, that's the only time you hear that character talk, I believe. Maybe, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and it's also it just something that, like, very legitimately, absolutely did not. Need, that entire scene could have been cut from the movie, and it's like, in terms of like plotting or anything, it actually is nothing. It's just like nothing. clearly Corbick wanted that in here for some reason, which I'm not quite sure, but like. To characterize again, it's maybe just, it's just yeah, that it's like just characterization, yeah. The and I think there's, I mean, I think there's something on a, on a sort of larger comment. I think there's something so fascinating about the insistence on every character in this, every every yeah character in this movie being thoughtful and being some degree of like intelligent at a level generally far beyond what the typical, like, I mean, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of narco cartel movies and TV shows and shit. And some of those maybe will have one like high minded character who's still written for a very base audience. But for the most part, it's like criminals are criminals. You know, they talk like criminals, they act like criminals, they look like criminals. Maybe they have a soft side because they have a kid, but really they're criminals. But every single person in this movie, and, I, and I, clearly a lot of people find this exhausting. I find it compelling. Every character in this movie is is thoughtful and is to some degree carefully spoken and in their own twisted way, like well-spoken and articulate is the word. Yeah, it's almost like a sort of like a, in like the very classical sense, like a Greek tragedy where it's just like, oh, it's all mm-hmm. these, you know, it's a series of, just uh you know in that case sometimes monologues or or dialogues where it's just like no we are just this is the way we're getting across our high-minded thoughts as opposed to like this is how you know common greek people 
are talking on the street. Yeah, and it's so interesting to hear that from this, specifically from the cartel people or, or the sleazy people that deal with them, given the way that they're, you know, characterized, perhaps rightly, right? I'm not saying cartel people need to be like, redeemed um but given the way that they're characterized in our culture at large through art um as these just you know dumb criminals it's so fascinating to see them instead depicted as like cunning articulate just kind of venomous smart characters like the like you know the biblical snake or whatever who was evil but was like smart (laughs) um it's it's so it's refreshing in a way to just not have idiot villains and not have global world domination minded villains either right yeah and i mean i guess the way that the villains sort of interact with the world and sort of their worldview feeds into your fourth point which is just the overall tone of like brutal nihilism in this movie yeah yeah and um, again, I'm a philosophy dilettante, so anybody that disagrees with that particular characterization, come at me. Fatalism might be another word that's more commonly assigned to Cormac. But just this, there's this um, notion throughout the whole movie that nothing really uh, matters <laughs> in the grand sense. It's, it's the majority of the movie's conversations are ultimately around a business deal because a rich man spent too much money and is now in a deep spot or in a bad spot and needs to get out of it. And he doesn't, we see him repeatedly not have any emotional register for all of the awful things the cartel is doing, no matter how many times he's warned about what they do and how they do it. None of that matters to him in any grand sort of moral sense or in any um, existential sense until it is threatening his own life and until it is all coming to him. And even at that point, we see him desperately trying for the whole third act of the movie, desperately trying to, as you said earlier, talk his way out of the situation he's gotten into. And if I can only, I mean, at one point he tries to run, but really the whole thing is like, if I can only just get in the room with these guys, let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. People keep saying, no, you can't talk to him. You're fucked. And then the sort of, Toward the end of the movie, he, he, in his most desperate moment, he goes down to Mexico and establishes contact with this Jefe character whom we have reason to believe he knew, I guess. In some or at least had some this. connection. Like he meets up with one guy who's like, I can get, yeah, you can talk to Jefe. Yeah. Who's this character yeah. played by. So I would say it's this character played by Ruben Blades. And I think that this is by far my favorite part of the movie is their conversation. And I would say Mm. it's, you can enjoy it. Even if, you know, even if the rest of the movie isn't for you, you could just like go on YouTube and like search the counselor Hefe, And it's a pretty like compelling scene, but it is super nihilistic for sure. Nihilistic uh, in that sense (laughs) where it's just like the counselor is just pleading with him. Like, cause uh, at this point when shit went down, he and his fiance, Penelope Cruz had been like, Let's just get out of town. Like we need to lay low. We're gonna go to Boise, but the cartel like kidnaps uh, his fiance, and he's just and this whole time he's just like trying to search for, trying to figure out like what happened, like whatever. And he's like, "Can I exchange myself for it? Like, will, will you just like kill mm-hmm. me and all this stuff?" And Hefe just is like the most philosophical kind of like high minded like approach to this of just like you keep on acting like 
this isn't already happened and you need to just like right. accept it. And he brings in like these poets and all this thing has the counselor like realizing that nothing is going to change. And he's ba- he then says, counselor, I have to go because I have to make other calls. Oh if I have time, I think I'll take a small nap. And then oh like hangs God. up. Yes. 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 Yeah, so this like, conversation starts yeah. with like, he had asked Hefe to contact the cartel and basically asked, he had asked this guy to ask the cartel if he could have an audience. And Hefe calls and he's basically like, no, you can't have an audience. What you need to do is accept the choices you made led you to this point. There's nothing you can do about it. Everything in your life is how it is. You made the decisions to set you down this path. You will never be on another path. There's no sense in thinking about other paths. You need to accept the inevitability of your situation. And after giving this total, like, sorry, bro, you're fucked. You can't possibly get out of this. But also, this it, it has a your life. It has a kindness to it. Like, he's he's being, oh, yeah, like, yeah. incredibly, like, it's not like, sorry, bro, you're fucked. Like, haha. He's like, I understand. This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. trying to give you philosophy to move on with your life, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, basically just, like, listen, like, the only... You, you're expending a bunch of energy and causing yourself a bunch of angst trying to make this anything but what it is. So accept that it is what it is, but I got to go. You're just my 2 PM. I'm going to take a nap. Sorry. Like this is the world he's in. This guy is either a cartel guy or he's like a DA attached to the cartel or something in Mexico. And so these are conversations he has with people like every day. Like he is, he lives in a world of people losing their lives to bad circumstance. Yeah, at their most desperate and just yeah, literally begging, trying to find any hope. And he's just like, no, nah, there's, there's no reason to hope. Yeah, yeah. And it, he's just totally peaceful about it. He's not, he's not mean. He's not like, you, you know, you shouldn't have fucked up at any point. He's just like, you know, I understand this is, this is awful, but this is what it is. You need to accept that as well. And it's so, it's like, it's the thing that through the whole movie, the counselor couldn't do, right? right? At no point could he accept himself actually in the situation. He couldn't see the bolita around his neck. And he couldn't see his fiance being the one who ends up in a snuff film. And he couldn't see, like, any of these bad circumstances coming to him, which is why none of the threats, all the points at which people, quote, couldn't advise him, he just, it just fell on deaf ears because he's like, that's not my situation. That will never be. It's, it's the hubris thing. And then, yeah, the guy's just like, no, it is your situation. Right. And then like immediately after that, he goes to a bar and is just having a, like, he gets drunk at the bar and like a guy wakes him up when it's like time to close. And he's basically, they have a, just even with the bartender, he has like a conversation where the bartender's like, don't go out there. You'll get shot. Cause they just shoot people at night. And he's like, uh, I don't care. And, yeah. and the bartenders sort of like, yeah, well, I've lost like everybody, uh, you know, all my family members are dead. And he's right. like, oh, that's that's terrible. It's like, oh, no, they're the lucky ones because I'm still here and I have like no meaning to my life. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. He's, yeah. It's the effect of like. Yeah, Fassbender's character is basically like everything's fucked. Like my my wife or fiance is gone. It's so horrible for her. Blah blah blah. And the guy's like, no, no, 
you know, the survivor is the one with no meaning because that was the meaning. It was just, I mean, like, yeah, like that's a high-minded philosophical conversation that apparently a lot of people hate. But these moments, I think, were so, I think, so earned. And to hear that kind of perspective come out in this articulate way from just this, like, sweaty dude who's closing down his bar at 2 a.m. in presumably some rough part of Juarez and scooting this gringo out of his bar and to just offer this little, this really, like, I mean, the thing that's so interesting about the, in, in contrast to the cartel, whom we've barely seen and only mostly heard about, is the Mexicans that we get to know or these, at least these two Mexicans who are two of the main ones we get to know in this movie in any capacity are so by contrast, like kind and sympathetic and just sort of like gentle with this character. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it, it, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just love the way that they're handled and he's in this moment that he, where he, you know, by all accounts doesn't, he deserves the sympathy of anybody who got bad, who had bad luck or whatever. But we've seen through this movie, he's an arrogant character who is right. who is certain that he's going to be able to do something that gets so many other people killed. And he knows, he spoke at length with Westray about how it's highly probable that all of the, all the rapes and murders of young women in Mexico preceding the drug wars, uh, which I believe is referring to the same sort of thing that... Um, Murders discussed in um, Roberto Bolaño's novel 2666 uh, are actually pre- that predated the drug wars and perhaps fueled the drug wars in many ways. Right. That the counselor was able to sit through all this, hear this, know that the business he was joining up for was complicit in all this, and then just look at it sort of uncaringly or just put it out of his world entirely. And to then get any kindness at the end of that, when that goes wrong, even if it's just superficial, like, you know, verbal kindness is, um, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly undeserved by the character, but it shows a, a, a just this like glimmer of kind of shocking sympathy in this very, very, very dark world. Sympathy or just, or just, um, I don't know, tenderness perhaps in spite of all the horrible things that are happening as these very scenes unfold. So with that cheery subject out of the way, the the nihilism (laughs) of it all, we should probably get to the fifth and final point of defense, which is not talking. So everybody can, uh, you know, scale back on that. It's not about uh, more dialogue and philosophy. It is actually about the production design and uh, costuming on this film. It's, um, I mean, this is, this is, I suppose, where we need to start giving a little more credit to Ridley Scott's side of things. I mean, he deserves credit for the way he handled, I think, all of what we've been discussing. I, I know I've been citing Cormac a lot when I've been talking about dialogue, but I also believe that these scenes have been directed very well and that the actors have been handled terrifically. I think it's fair to categorize this as more of a Cormac McCarthy movie than like a Ridley Scott movie. I don't think that's yeah. like out of bounds. You know, it's just like there's times no. like, you know, like The Whale's not really like an Aronofsky film as much as it's like taking the playwright's work and, uh, you know, right. making that. Yeah. It's doesn't, it doesn't have all like the hallmarks. And this doesn't necessarily have all like the hallmarks that you would expect in a Ridley Scott movie. It is very like, oh, yes, we're putting the words 
on the page Mm -hmm. primarily. But then there is things to look at. I mean, like a lot of people mentioned that it was sort of like absurd eye candy mixed with this philosophizing, which is something that turned off people. But yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. um, Especially in certain characters. You mentioned earlier sort of the contrast between like the counselor's world and, you know, Javier Bardem's world. And it is very stark in things like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, for every bit of texture and, and, and character and tone that we got through Cormac's dialogue, I think Ridley's production design that he led and his mise-en-scene is up to par with that. And it's we see, as with so many other things in the movie that we've been talking about, that's maybe the meta point of all of this, is this combination of high and low, right? And that's something that's just super to my taste in general. I love seeing an incredibly expensive piece of clothing, let's say, that's been worn to tatters, right? Mm -hmm. I love to see something that's high design or sort of beautifully refined in its production then taken to a point of abuse or, you know, from the opposite end, take something very low and grimy and and elevate it to whatever point you want. And I think that the the back and forth that we see in these different scenes, again, all these different conversations, we're seeing them happen in all these different places. And some of them are happening in very expensive home, in the bright white bed sheets. And then other ones are happening in this sort of like trashy, but incredibly expensive, almost like you know, it's it's this it's an El Paso house, but like El Paso's take on a Miami house kind of right. thing that, that Reiner's character occupies. And then there's this the the place that Westray and, and the counselor have their first conversation, this sort of cafe bar thing. It's this it's such an interesting setting because it's got the kind of industrial chic interior design going on that, you know, was was sort of coming alive and at this point, 2013 or whatever, it was probably a few years old at that point, that overall takeover of style and, and luxury environments. But so you've got this raw, this initially raw setup, but then, and there's, you know, huge, great paintings on the walls of this place. And these people are both dressed very expensively. They're beautiful men, both of them. And then you look out in the windows on either side, this is a uh, like through block building that they're staying in. And if you look out the windows on either side, it's like shitty city environment. Like you see like semi trucks and dirt and garbage and dumpsters and stuff. It's like El Paso is kind of a shitty city. And yet we're seeing these incredibly expensive little blips in this like kind of ugly border town. I spent a lot of time in El Paso, but I spent enough to spend enough time there to know it's not a particularly attractive place that is <laughs> where, where the buildings we're seeing in the counselor are emblematic of it. Yeah, and it's it's just it, seeing seeing the the deliberate nature of that of where these conversations are being held, um, not just in a plot way, but in a sort of like character world and context way. Much in the same way, the conversations themselves don't necessarily advance the plot. Um, I don't think where the conversations are being had is advancing the narrative either, but it is contributing to the the scene and the vibe and the, like the energy and the, the sense of, I don't know, alternating senses of doom and alienation. Yeah. I mean, I like even that place that you mentioned for the first talk is they it's literally like underground. Like they have to like step downstairs to mm-hmm. get to the, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it's sort of like literally going into the, like the underworld. 
That's funny. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. yeah. So it's like the and it's like the first time and it sort of contrasts where like you kind of had to go up to the mansion on the hill uh, to mm. meet you know Javier's character. Yeah. You, and you mentioned sort of the you know in the point like the stylings of the people like there was definitely like. I do think like some of the things, the stylings are sort of absurdist, but they were like at least intentional in that way. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, looking into the background of this, like Ridley Scott spent a lot of time with intentional choices and like reach out to a bunch of like known stylists, like Giorgio Armani designed all of Mm. like Fassbender and Cruz's wardrobe but like very clearly did not do the other characters meanwhile javier bardem's character is almost exclusively in versace pieces it's just (laughs) like a weird combination of things so it looks like kind of manic and depraved his hair which is you know is like sort of like stick your hand in an electric socket always like standing up it is very clearly a sort of joke about brian glazer's hair like the producer like if you look at a picture of him, you're like, oh, they just like did like Brian Glazer's hair, who's like the producer of like Splash and Apollo 13 and The Beautiful Mind, like a bunch of Ron Howard stuff. It's just like, oh yeah, that's his hair. He's like a recognizable person because of his hair, and that's for sure what right. Javier Bardem does. Meanwhile, Cameron Diaz had all of her wardrobe designed by Paul Thomas of uh, Thomas Wilde, um, is the mm. fashion brand, and so it's all like he brought in literally like world famous designers and be like, you do this character, you do these characters, you do this character. And like, so that it's like chic, but it's also different like worlds. And like, there's just, you know, like almost like in comparison to like Fassbender's and Cruz's character, like some of the other stylings almost seem like violent in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's again that like harsh contrast of like sophisticated versus like debauched, right? And it's this, it's these it's these extremes that I think play so well that you know we've been going back and forth on through this whole conversation: the intellectualism, depravity, the quiet, the loud, and it it by having these really these refined design senses, both about the settings and the and the costumes you're creating something that is, I don't know, it's simultaneously, it, well, it's like, it's, you can't even call it camp, right? Like there were reviews, I think that referred to it as like overly, you know, pulpy or campy, but it's, it's so sincere. It, every one of these characters, like none of them are wearing, any, none, of the, none of them are wearing anything ironically. And none of it is like, playing up certain ridiculous elements of the movies. It's just perfectly lending themselves to the way these characters exist in the world. They have, this is the taste they have. These are not, these are not criminals in Western Europe who are wearing the most refined suiting or whatever. This is not um, a Guy Ritchie movie where they're all wearing Savile Row or they're wearing like trainers and track pants. No. These are like these are trashy rich Americans for the most part. Or they're the like suit Americans. Yeah. Like Javier and the counselor, like I don't know if we explicitly said, but like one of their things is like in addition to their drug dealing, they're gonna set up like a nightclub. And it's just like Oh yeah. Yeah. Javier Bardem's whole thing is like nightclub bro, like rich nightclub bro. Yeah, like he'd be a crypto show now. For sure. 
<laughs> and and that is so well it's so well conveyed in our, our primary characters so like set that down but then the the motorcyclist who i forgot has a name he's the green hornet is what they call him yeah um which is a fantastic name his so he's every time we see him he's either on or within 20 feet of his green black and white um japanese racing motorcycle i don't know that world very well what's one of those (laughs) and he's covered in his green black and white leathers with his green black and white helmet which of course is where he gets his name but the like these aren't the just the sort of like generic every bro with a dirt bike has a fox leather jacket kind of thing these are high design leathers this is a cartel guy who makes probably millions of dollars a year doing just driving his motorcycle around and he wears the flashiest most sort of like simultaneously like high-end but also sleazy version of this like loud motorcycle leather suit and then like i said earlier we see him go to his home and the first thing you see is this dog sitting on this beautiful um, modern sofa sitting out on a, a disused runway and then he walks into his hangar home, his airplane hangar home, and it's full of gorgeous used furniture, just like old pieces, many modern, recognizable modern classics. And he's like, this is a guy who like probably hasn't shaved in weeks, not because it's his look, but because he doesn't give a fuck. And he's like always sweaty and it's this dirty ass hangar and he like pours beer in his dog's food bowl. Like, it's that juxtaposition of those conflicting and like, again, it's this dignification of the like low cartel, dirty, gross, bad villain guy by saying, no, this is actually, this guy's on a level playing field in terms of like taste and like, therefore almost like danger and potential power as the, as the rich American lawyer. Yeah, I mean, now that you're saying it, it does sort of evoke, like, he Green Hornet's a little bit of, like, what you would imagine if Maverick from Top Gun was, like, a dirtbag kind of guy, where you're just like, oh, yeah, he's just, like, <laughs> driving on his motorcycle and going to the hangar, and, like, he's just got his dog and, like, a couple pieces of furniture at his, like, hangar where he actually lives, because, like... He's outcast from society because he's such a rebel. But like instead, it's just like, oh, but he's actually like a drug runner, not like a military hero that just like laws can't contain me, man. Like that kind of like, you know, yeah, whatever Tom Cruise world of things. This is more like the like dirty border world version of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Or like the border world cartel version of um, the protagonist's crazy waterfront like garage loft in tron legacy mm-hmm. where it's like it's it's that classic movie thing right where they're like oh this person doesn't give a shit about anything and then you see their apartment and it's like it's huge it's beautiful it's amazing but this one and it, it never feels it always feels so inauthentic and stupid whereas this one this particular this guy's home in this one feels so so real in the way that you can drive through a lot of really depressed neighborhoods in the world, but particularly in America, we have this thing where there will be a lot of really rundown sort of fucked up houses. They're in a very bad, sad state. 
but the people living in them will have sort of brand new cars, either purchased in cash or on lease or however they have them. You have this very expensive ride in front of this very dilapidated house. And it's kind of like just due to the priorities and the purchasing decisions of the people that live there. And, and that's sort of exactly the scenario this guy's in. He's like, well, I can't, maybe a situation due to his line of work or whatever doesn't make sense to have this permanent residence or something. But he's a guy who's got a lot of disposable income, presumably. And so he buys super nice, expensive furniture. His motorcycle is probably, you know, his leathers are probably several thousand dollars themselves but like he's got all this nice stuff he's got the taste but he also lives in this dirty border world and seeing that so vividly depicted is I just think it's so rare that you find a movie that like hits that that kind of nuance well it's either like oh this is super shitty or this is super nice and we certainly saw the super nice in the fast bender side of things but then this this like halfway point between the two i think is so fascinating and then there's so many other you know examples of this like the um <laughs> the the we we haven't talked about the eventually the drugs get to their destination yeah. in this movie and their destination turns out to be in chicago and it shows up and Lo and behold, on the other end of this drug deal is another sort of naive, stupid, arrogant, doesn't know what he's doing, white man in a nice suit, sitting there kind of watching the Mexicans who know what they're doing, or Mexican-Americans, it sounds like these are not accidents, who knows, up in this part of the country, sitting there doing the actual labor and doing the hard work of this deal as he sits there, presumably having a lot of money on the line, kind of asking stupid questions. And they're kind of like placating him like, yeah, sure, let me give you these answers. But in in this setup where you're just seeing drugs being unloaded and you're seeing that they were stuffed into these barrels and they're you know being cut out of the bags for distribution and all that. Well, it turns out they got one too many barrels, one more barrel than they were expecting. And the I think it was the fifth barrel or something. <laughs> the Mexican characters who are unloading the truck, they know what that barrel is. They didn't even unload it. They just sort of vaguely allude to it in the way so many things are vaguely hinted at in this movie and then the one naive character who just doesn't know what's going on insists on getting the extra information again in this case it's the like white dude in the suit he's like well what do you mean what's in that other barrel and he's like i don't worry about it he's like well what's in it and they open it up and they tell him well it's 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 a dead body it's somebody that someone wanted disappeared and now it's just going to be it was put on this truck. It's a little bit of a joke, a little bit of a practical matter. And we don't have anything to do with it here. So we're going to put it back on the truck and it's going to go somewhere else. And then it's going to show up somewhere else. And it's going to show up somewhere else after that. And I mean, I guess that gets back to the nihilism thing of just this like infinite, this dead body traveling around at least the continent, maybe the world, um, between various different deals as everybody just kind of is like, oh yeah, it's another one of those. Yeah. And then, and so, yeah, seeing this unpacking in the scene in a different place in Chicago and the way that whole factory looks, it's like the American version of the Mexican chop shop that we saw the drugs start out in, in the beginning. And you see, it's a little bit cleaner. It's a little less rusty. It's a little more like quasi-professionally professional looking, but it's ultimately, it's the same kind of place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... 
the settings in this are just so I don't know they're also they just they just do so much then of course there's the setting of um, where the cartel guy takes the truck to get sort of repainted and done over the like uh, chop shop in the desert yeah he just like the guy after the shootout thing the one guy with a bullet in his leg uh, drives it to a chop shop just to get like fully like take out all the doors repaint it you know make sure it's not traceable essentially it just here's a wad of cash do it yeah and he's takes his pants off gets his leg dressed super comfortable just having a drink hands over a wad of cash and then drives away again again all without any explanation (laughs) any exposition whatsoever which again, I just I love just being along the ride, being on the ride for that. Right. And I think that, you know, it's fine to not it's fine if that's not your cup of tea. But I think if there's a movie that does that well, this is it. It's because it's it takes such a simple story. Like at a story level, it's so simple. And then it finds it and this is something I think is just I think it's a very hard thing to do, particularly in um, film where you take something, I think people do this in a great job of this in music all the time, right? Like this is what like punk is built on. It's a very simple thing that you make somehow much more conceptually complex than the, than the sum of its parts would suggest. I think that, that that's done so well in this, where you have this, this very, very basic concept, a very simple narrative structure, almost simpler than it, than do you think it could be because you never really understand what the motivations were behind Malkina's character, except to just kind of like get hers. Right. And yeah. And it just, it, it makes everything else heavy and heavy and complex so that the core line of it remains dead simple. And I find that to be so successful. Well, I think that covers the five points of defense, but before we get out of here, I will slip into the junk drawer. Um, are there any junk drawer thoughts, things that we didn't cover? I know we covered a lot so far, but is there anything that you wanted to mention that didn't fit into any of those points? Yeah, yeah, a few things. <laughs> Some of these are kind of, I'm kind of going to get a little, uh, maybe a little ranty here. I have a couple of directed comments at certain types of critics Yeah, in movies like this. One of which is, I, in my personal, not so humble opinion, a lot of people call movies like this and movies that, that try to do a lot with dialogue pretentious. It's a word you hear a lot. I don't know if we heard that. It, it, it was in a lot of the reviews, yeah. Yeah, so you hear that a lot. Um, my personal take is most of the time when people call things pretentious, whatever that is, whether it's a movie, a book, a song, an album, whatever, a painting – that's more a projection of the person saying it than it is the thing itself. I think, and maybe this is just coming from somebody who likes a lot of shit that people call pretentious and maybe I'm just defending myself. So be it. I'll do that. Most of the time when I think see things being accused of being pretentious, it's actually just shit that people didn't want to take the time to focus on or absorb in a way that they were, that they're used to maybe focusing on or absorbing that medium. So like you take a movie that somebody calls pretentious I mean, there are people that call like like um, Christopher Nolan movies pretentious, mm-hmm. right? Like these are blockbuster, huge, simple. Like I mean, maybe simple is not the word, but but like blockbuster movies. They're not they're the base movies. I mean, there are a lot of people that you know. I, I continually like people who are like 
oh, like Inception is so confusing. I'm like, Inception is a very straightforward movie. It is not, it is not a complicated, like, it's just like, once you get the one idea, it's like they're implanting dreams. Like that was, I I really liked that movie. It's like, but I did, I did it. I, that was always such a weird criticism, not even a criticism, but just like, oh man, like it's so hard to follow. I'm like, not, it's not even like in the top, Christopher Nolan movies that are hard to follow. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's it's. I'm just baffled by people who seem unwilling to rise to the occasion of a piece of art. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's no accounting for taste. If you don't like something, you don't like something, and that's fine. But to but when I hear the word pretentious, it feels as though somebody's saying that thing is trying to be smarter than I want to let it be. Yeah, I think that's, and it's I one thing if fair. you're like, "Hey, I don't think that this is successfully smart." Mm-hmm. Like if you like, it's if, if you watch the counselor and you're like, "Actually, all of these ideas are stupid." Well, I mean, I I, I think it. Yeah, I think you could be like, "These speeches are like, even if you like them, I think there are people that could be like, well, that speech was cool. It also had like, you know, I like you know sub cohesive, you know, things to mean things." to the plot you know how we were talking about that earlier where it's just like for sure you know like oh like i like i personally i'm like not a huge fan of this movie but it's just like oh when the jefe speech comes out i'm like oh i love that like i I love that seed and stuff like that even though because it seems like also it seems sort of more closely tied to the plot than a lot of the other ones Mm -hmm. so maybe that's partially what i'm responding to but also when like the jeweler and him are talking and it's like this culture thing it really doesn't their conversation on culture and Judaism doesn't really have a lot to do with like directly with the plot, but it is like, Oh, okay. Like I could, I'm not like, what are you? How dare you like try and be smarter than me thing. I'm just like, yeah, it doesn't work necessarily work for me, but I'm not like rebelling in that way. I'm just like, I don't know. I just wish I had a better sense of the plot. Yeah, for sure. Like taste is one thing, but to like, shoot down somebody for like like artistic ambition which i think is what almost always pretentious criticisms are it's like they clearly wanted me to listen to every word of this conversation i came in to watch a movie about like narcos and gunfights and they're not letting me do that fuck them these guys are snobs yeah no fuck you Mm -hmm. so that's one thing another thing is kind of like so we talked a little bit about him earlier in terms of like guys that like dialogue in a big way in their movies. Tarantino yeah. is a big one. And I think that there are a lot of uh, not similarities, but there are, there's a lot of ground for comparison, I think between a Tarantino movie and the counselor. And, and I, I say this liking Tarantino generally, but like, I think Tarantino dialogue, which a lot of people love, you know, a lot of people have grievances with his, his colorful language and things like that. Um, but a lot of people generally consider him to be a great screenwriter. And I think Tarantino dialogue is like, it's movie dialogue for people who think Rockstar writes really great video games, which <laughs> probably a lot of people are like, I love Tarantino, I love Rockstar. For those unfamiliar rock stars who does like Grand Theft Auto and like Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. Yeah. Which are, I think, kind of not very good games and are not at all well written games. 
And so I bring this up, not just to be a dick, but because this is a crime movie. The Counselor is a crime movie, right? And it's very much in the wheelhouse of like, not that Tarantino's made a cartel movie, but you could see him making a cartel movie. And he would have long conversations in it and people would probably respond well to those because he writes very different conversations. And that many of them are very, very good. Again, I'm not saying anything negative against Tarantino. I think he's, he's got a thing going. But they're so, those are the kinds of conversations that are so much more obvious, maybe is the word, or so much more um, kind of like direct and on the table. And certainly for the most part about the plot, Right. Mm-hmm. But they feel like very, yeah, like just, just every time a new Rockstar game comes out, people are like, oh, the writing was amazing. The dialogue's so good. The characters are so good. I'm like, motherfucker, these are the most generic, obvious characters that they've been hammering on for 20 years now. Yeah. I, th- I think like, I think like Grand Theft Auto 4 is like, I, there's some writing in that I like. Grand Theft Auto 5 is not a well written story or game at all. No. Uh, it's, so over the top but I, yeah i think that tarantino like the difference between the tarantino and the cormac here is also just sort of like it's that sort of approach where it's just like this is clearly like i'm going to focus on the philosophy versus like focus on sort of like pop philosophy you know or like wanting mm-hmm. it to be like you know tarantino's dialogue is always like part of it is like I'm going to make this fun with like this talking, you know, even like a right. menacing scene, like Christopher Waltz at the start of uh inglorious bastards where it's just like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, he's very menacing and, you know, having all this, but he's just like having fun with it. Like nobody in almost nobody in this movie is like, even when Javier's describing the, uh, car fuck it's just like he's almost like miserable describing it in a way or yeah. like oh, yeah. detached yeah. where it's just like, he's not like, he, he has fun when he's talking about the one language barrier bar hookup, but that's like as fun as anybody has in this movie. Like he's like, ah, it was a great time. And everything else is just very serious. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, artists and writers talk about contracts a lot, right? Like the contract you set up with your audience or whatever with each piece you're making. And I think that's, I think that's a, a good conversation to have. And maybe it's just that, Tarantino, like, you know, some of the most ravenous Tarantino fans are, sorry, but stupid people. (laughs) I believe they're stupid people. I've got that old fashioned perspective. And I think some of the, a a lot of really smart people love Tarantino. He's great. Again, not shitting on Tarantino, but like as many people who appreciate maybe the nuance or the subtleties of Tarantino's films, there are, there are as many who are like, they cuss a lot, they fuck a lot, and there's a lot of blood. And like, you know, swearing, sex, and violence, I love those things too. But he's meeting people, he's, he's, I think he's a lot better, or maybe just a lot more familiar at setting up a contract and meeting film goers on a like, this is a movie contract. Mm-hmm. And maybe where a lot of people lose Cormac and Scott, uh, Cormac and Ridley in this, is that they're kind of, they're not breaking the contract of a movie. It's not like nobody's ever made a movie that has the beats that the counselor does before. It's not like nobody's ever made a, a long conversational movie. But I suppose it there was just there's maybe just a disservice of the context. Like I, I mean, it's an expectation thing where it's just like if you see yeah. all these A-listers and it's like from the guy who made like all these blockbusters that you know, and it, you know, mm-hmm. apparently, you know, even if you're not familiar, it's like oh, apparently it's this like really great writer. 
uh, who's doing it, that it's just like, oh, you come in with a certain thing, and it's about like drugs and like violence and stuff like that. That you again come in, and it's an hour and fifteen minutes before anything happens. Yeah, this isn't what I expected. You know, it's just like the higher, you know, all always it's better to have lower expectations for things because if you have a low expectation going in, you're not like you can't be disappointed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, for sure. clearing the bar and it's just like, oh, this movie's bar was set extremely high for a lot of people. And it's just like, well, that wasn't what I had envisioned when I made mm-hmm. up what this movie would be in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get how people like, I mean, this came out before Sicario, right? But like, I get how people who maybe saw Sicario and were like, oh, I want another smart border movie came would have come to something like this and been like oh this isn't like sicario this this isn't even this shouldn't even be the same genre right Right. i get where that's coming from but what what perplexes me a little bit and well and i also get how people are like i saw no country for old men i think that's a big thing that this came out right after no country for old men so a lot of people had the expectation of like oh it's another corbic it's like sort of in the same world right. it's got javier bardem in it again right. i know him because he was just in no country and it's just like oh so it's going to be sort of like that movie and it's not yeah I, I mean it's sort of like that movie but not but yeah yeah coming off of coming off of no country for old men that's much more of like a romp of the movie and there's a lot more action and and it's also a great movie that was very well adapted. And it's also a great book. But what? So I see how people would come into the council and be like, "Oh, it's that writer." Yeah, there's also tension in like that movie has tension within the conversations, and this movie sort of doesn't have like. like there's the one time he's conf- the counselor is confronted at like the polo grounds, which kind of is feels like a non sequitur. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like there yeah. are like all these characters are like not against each other ever like in the conversation i mean there's a little confrontation between like there's uncomfortableness in the when diaz talks to cruz and they're getting a massage Mm -hmm. and they're talking about like confessing sins and things like that but there's not like a scene like in no country where like the coin flip scene where it's like oh this is like a bad situation somebody like might die like right now within this scene there's or that happens like a few times in no country where it's like somebody's in great peril right now and almost like none of the peril happens within any of the scenes where they're talking. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I, I guess I've previously loved that without putting those dots together and just conceptually. I love that now thinking about it, but that makes a lot of sense. How that would be sort of unsatisfying to people. I think uh, you mentioned the, the confession conversation, love, love, love the, when Cameron Diaz, Malkina, when she goes to actually goes to a priest to confess, and he is not letting her and all that. One of the first things she said, she's like, so women come in and talk to you about all the bad things they've done, all the sex they've had and all that. And that's pretty much it. Knowing he's a priest and he's celibate and all that. She's like, that must give you a really fucked up view of women. <laughs> I had never thought of that particular thing before of the idea of like the majority of the conversations that a good priest has with women is about all of the things that he has declared debauched for them to do and horrible mm-hmm. for them to do. And the way that that 
informs the priestly outward opinion of women. It's like, no wonder they're just the person who ate the apple forevermore. It's such a fascinating framing, something that you get from someone like Cormac. But you mentioned the, the lack of drama in the conversations. And I think that's right. But one thing I do want to point out that I think is a brilliant choice on, on Scott's side in two or three of these big conversations, um, there's not a whole, there's not much music in this movie and there's not much score. There's enough, but it's not like it's a silent movie, but there's not a whole lot, particularly in a lot of these conversations. But in the, in two or three of them, there is a like to the syllable cue of this faint background, like really ominous, eerie kind of whine that mm-hmm. picks up and slowly mounts through the rest of the conversation. I think one of them happens in the conversation with the jeweler. And I think there's one around the time of the Bolito conversation. And I think there's another one in one of the conversations with Westray. And they're so subtle and so just barely there. But you just notice this thing. It like it, It's cued to a word in these conversations. And that kind of just like... I'm a sucker for a movie that just doesn't overdo music, you know, in a world which like every blockbuster, it's just a constant score through the whole movie. And while that's artistically impressive in a way, it, as we, as I think a lot of people agree, it could be very emotionally deadening, ironically, you know, it's supposed to right. curate your emotional arc. But I think that, that that tiny little, it's like, it's almost a single, I don't even think it's a chord that's being hit. I think it's just a single note that just builds. And it builds this just fantastic like conceptual tension that, like you said, isn't between the conversants. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a fantastic touch. So a couple of the junk door things that I had, I mean, I'll, I'll get into some of the like criticisms just straight up. Like there's a few things where I'm like, that doesn't totally track. Um, like the, the fact that Penelope Cruz is like kidnapped at like an airport car park in broad daylight seems a little bit like I don't think I don't think that's happening even with <laughs> even for the cartel I think they'd be like I don't know maybe we pick her up where she's going or something like that it seems a little brash for even the world that they've created you know there's there's other hangups which I've mentioned where it's just like you know I w- I would like I don't need it to hold my hand but I would just like some sense of the world in like in terms of just like what the characters like, I don't know. I feel like at some point you need to just say like, why does everybody call this guy the counselor? Like he could have <laughs> well, worked. He's a counselor. He's a lawyer. So I guess, but like it's it's a strange choice to me. I don't know. It's a strange choice. To I mean, like the main character in, in Fight Club doesn't have a name at all. Yeah, I don't know. It, for some reason, that threw me, that threw me a little bit off. I think I think probably maybe one of the bigger problems that I have just in terms of uh, the way that the movie plays out. And I think it's partially because it might be part of that introduction in sort of the way that there are just so many, the counselor going from plot to plot is that you don't really get a super strong connection between Fastbender and Cruz, like built up to the point where like, it's more like their relationship starts. You see it as almost lust over love and then it's sort of she's sort of like held up as this like angelic person that's almost apart from his actual world that like Mm -hmm. i don't feel the emotional stakes by the time like she's god 
Like I've, mm. I, I think that's sort of something that I feel like is a flaw that for me anyway. Yeah. You definitely have to trust that it's there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of, it's a lot of like, a lot of the movie is sort of like, just trust us. Just like, just go along. Like we don't right. need to like, again, it's that thing of, we don't need to explain things and you like are able to generally follow what's going on, but it it is sometimes I think you do feel a little bit lost if you're just not um, wrapped in all the dialogue. If it's not mm-hmm. if the if those tones aren't just like hitting the right notes for you, then you're like, I don't know, like so who's on what side is who's these? And I mean, I know some of it's like di- intentional, you know, being. Obs- obtuse and be like you don't know who this is and things like that but right. it is i will say it's not an easy movie to follow and i i don't blame people for like not following certain things yeah i think that's fair but uh again it's just like for you it's just like oh yeah the that is actually a benefit that you know it steps out of that normal coherent you know, way that movies are often told and focuses again on the, on the words more, but yeah, uh, that, yeah. that's, that's some of my junk door stuff. Did you have any, a couple other stray thoughts? Yeah. Well, just on that, it's like, it's, it's interesting because most movies you watch, and again, I think this is kind of part of the movie contract and this isn't necessarily, this is going to, this might sound critical, but I don't mean it as a criticism necessarily because I love a lot of very, very, let's just say like dumb movies most movies don't really need you to listen to what's being said half the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'd say that your average movie, and it could even be a really good movie, and it could even be a really well-written movie. Your average movie probably only needs you to truly internalize like 25% of the dialogue. Whereas the counselor kind of asks, it certainly asks you to internalize every single word. I, I like that, but I totally get how like, A, even if people were, even if you're somebody who is up for that, it may be such a shock to you to have it asked for you, ask for that, that you just don't, you don't follow and you're not along for that ride. Right. And so I get that. I mean, it is funny. Like the last episode we did on a feature length movie of this podcast was a uh, speed racer by the Wachowskis. And Great that's movie. the opposite end of the spectrum where you talk yes. about where it's just like you could have and I think one of the reviewers even said it like you could have the sound off for this movie and you would lose like almost nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> where yeah. it's just like it is just a visual like storytelling uh, piece that everything else is sort of inconsequential in the way that like in this it's such a dialogue heavy piece that you know it's almost the opposite like it's it it, in some ways it is closer to the counselor is closer to a book on tape than it is to speed racer Mm -hmm. not 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 saying that it's like not there aren't you know visually arresting shots and stuff like that and you know the production design we talked about but it's just like it is the those are spectrum movies that we have Mm -hmm. gone back to back yeah, yeah, just very, very, very different uses of the form, and both both great movies, I think. Of course, we'd be remiss without just actually talking a little bit about the the final Bolito scene. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, it is probably one of the like yeah most notable. Like Brad Pitt has some good dying scenes. This is one of the better death uh, scenes. 
It's so good. And it's also, there's a more violent version than what actually appeared. Apparently, the on the uncut version on the DVD or whatever, they showed mm-hmm. the version that they had to cut to make sure that it didn't get a like NC-17 rating. Yeah, you definitely need to. If you watch this movie, and you should, you should definitely watch the extended cut. I mean, that's the case. Like, that's a good rule to have with Ridley Scott movies in general, I think. Homeboy leaves a lot on the floor for the first time around. Um, and it took him, what, like three tries to get Blade Runner right. And when he did, oh boy, you got it right. But yeah, so so West Ray seems like he's the guy who got up. He seems like he's the one character who's not getting completely fucked by this situation. Malkina accepted, having, having orchestrated it. And so he gets to London, part of his sort of like runaway plan. And he checks into a hotel and has a has a little interaction with a character um, by, played by Natalie Dormer, right? Yeah. And a little flirty moment was suggested further interaction, which we later find out she was meant to be getting the login and password for his laptop <clears throat> so that Malkina could get something out of this deal. Because again, as we said, the cartel got the drugs back that she was trying to take possession of with her intervention. And so she gets that information from her. And then Malkina, again, specifically not the cartel, which is kind of interesting. Malkina, again, sends out a guy with a bolito. And she sends out a guy with a bolito to take take down Westray on the streets of London. As Javier Bardem described earlier, throws it over his head, pulls the cord. And then there's this long scene, longer in the extended cut, of Brad Pitt's character fighting what we now what we've been told is an unfightable death, right? Yeah. And what he himself knew was. And so it's him as he clutches this thing tightening around his neck like an automatic garrote. And it eventually is choking and choking him. Then you see some blood trickle out. And then it pops open his carotid artery, blood sprays all over the people around him. He drops to the ground, his fingers fall off. And he just sits there gurgling, lying, dying in a puddle of blood as everybody is either running away or most people are just standing there watching him, just horrified by what's happening. Yeah. And then eventually medics come, pick him up, and his head falls off. Decapitation number two. That's right. And again, just this brilliant punctuation of violence. And then the very last scene, we see Malkina, or the last couple scenes, we see Malkina has sent somebody else to pick up the pick up West Ray's laptop as he's sitting there dying. So she gets his laptop, enters the password that she got from um, Natalie Dormer's character, and basically accesses his bank accounts, which we see to have far, we haven't talked about it, but the number that was getting thrown around in terms of how much money this deal was worth is $20 million. West Ray's got like, I think we see like roughly like $5 million or something across his multiple accounts. And so he's a loaded man, there's money to be had but it's far less than the deal. So Malkina is basically just like, I'm going to get something out of this. And so she's like, I'm going to kill this guy who think he got away, thinks he got away, transfer this to my accounts. And then at the end, she meets up with her accountant and is like, can you get this business done for me? And then basically threatens him almost. She's like, you're probably going to want to disappear or something. This is like, you're going to want to like, get out of this. Be scarce or yeah. get out of this. Yeah. Basically says like, you're marked now too because I've fucked everything up, but I'm getting away fine. And it's just her final little like lash of the tail or whatever. 
And she, as far as we know, gets away clean with this handful of millions of dollars. She even makes a remark like, oh, I knew the drugs were always going to get to Chicago, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like she did, but she's just like, I don't care. You know, I had a backup plan anyway. So Awesome. Well, there, there you go. This is probably our longest podcast, but uh, that is the counselor. <laughs> Will has made his case that it is underappreciated if you are willing to step outside of maybe some of the conventional film norms that you are used to and experience, you know, a bunch of bad people talking to each other for a couple hours. That's right. Before we go out of here, Will, do you have anything you would like to plug? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's plug Cormac McCarthy. He's got two new novels out. I haven't read them yet. That's probably great. Blood Meridian is is kind of one of his, his masterpieces and it's a very savage, very dark book, but it's, um, it is, I think, in my humble opinion, the height of English prose, period, flat out, the best prose ever put to page in the English language. Um, you may absolutely hate it, depending on your taste for write, for reading, but uh, it's at least worth trying, I think. Awesome. As for me, I should point out, I think this is the first episode I've done since I'm going to take this podcast to Treefort Fest in March down in mm-hmm. Boise, trying out a live episode. It is, we'll see how it goes. I think it's only like a 40 minute time slot. And, you know, as I check in um, two hours into this podcast, we will see how that goes. <laughs> but yeah, I think think at least for now it's planned to be on sunday the 26th is when the live everyone is wrong podcast will happen and that would be free to anybody who happens to be around boise i basically know one person there who listens so daniel you you will probably be there but uh anybody else uh you're welcome if you know people in boise or have music people that are going down for that cultural festival check out the podcast and other things if you want to keep up to date with that i realize i never give the socials on the podcast so quickly at facebook it's facebook.com slash everyone is wrong on twitter it's everyone's wrong underscore and on instagram it's just everyone's wrong those last two is not everyone is it's just everyone's because people claim names and stuff so anyway that's my (laughs) that's my portion of the plugs thanks will for coming on fiercely defending uh a movie that you adore anytime again we're in the as we were ranting about emo nights and carly ray jepson and the whole point of this podcast is very much you know like things because you like them with that thanks for coming on and remember even if everyone else mocks it love the stuff you love (laughs) 